Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broader reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and a researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Isa Kavitsia, Senior Lecturer in Anthropology at the University of Exeter, to discuss super-aged Japan, the challenges of a top-heavy demographic, and how to live a meaningful, hopeful life in the face of crisis. I would like to apologize in advance for any differences in audio quality this week as we are unfortunately experiencing technical difficulties during the recording of this episode. Nonetheless, we hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Isa. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hello, good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. As usual, I'd like to start off by asking a little bit more about you. Uh, can you. Can you tell us about your fields and how your interests have brought you there? Um, thank you. I'm, I'm a lecturer in anthropology at the University of Exeter. Um, so I'm an anthropologist. My interests coalesce around topics of well-being and living well. And um, I'm an anthropologist of Japan, which means that I've been conducting ethnographic long-term fieldwork in Japan ever since 2008. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know well, ethnographic fieldwork relies on on spending extended periods of time in close contact with a group group of people. So rather than conducting large-scale surveys, uh, you focus on a smaller group of people and spend a lot of time with them, try to get to know them and build rapport in order to represent their point of view. So that's what anthropologists do. I worked with older people in in the Japanese city of Osaka. And so I think many many who are familiar with Japan um, immediately ask why Osaka, what brought me to to Osaka and Kansai region of Japan. And I think uh, part of it was serendipitous. It was a range of introductions at first. Um, But at the same time, I was quite aware of the fact that much of the research done in Japan and a lot of the anthropological and sociological research was based in Tokyo, the capital, and maybe it was a little bit overrepresented in um, in the research. So I was interested in doing some work in, a, in an urban setting. I was interested in working in a place that's not um, in the mountains, not necessarily a village that is very much an urban setting. I was interested in urban ties and the ways that people live together uh, in an urbanized, dense environment. Um, so Osaka seemed like a good choice. Um, so in my doctoral field, work, uh, in my doctoral research, I was primarily interested in the ways in which older people understand what constitutes a good life. And I focused with those older people who lived independently or with their families. As much of the research at the time had been conducted in institutions, um, su- you know, support homes for the elderly. And I wanted to balance that out, uh, give a little bit of a different um, perspective on, on, on living in older age. Because I think living in institutions probably leads to a set of different challenges um, that don't necessarily have uh, a, a, you know, they're not, not representative of, of the experience of aging uh, in, uh, in its totality. 
So um, uh, the focus um, uh, of the on, on well-being and and a good life, though, that I had, does not necessarily mean that um, things were always easy or smooth or rosy for my interlocutors in the field. I think what I was interested in is how people manage to live well despite the challenges that the life brings for them. More recently, since 2013, I've become interested in, in work and in creativity and the way that work and creativity relate to well-being. And I spent nine months working with contemporary artists in Osaka. And that project is now being actually expanded into a, a research on, on uh, worlds of creativity and work of artists in Japan um, with support from the AHRC. Um, I also recently started a project on work among older people, so the work in po post-retirement, um, as increasingly large a number of older people are uh, returning to employment and starting sort of second careers. Very exciting stuff. Focusing on the elderly in Japan, this seems to be a topic which is relatively well known amongst those, perhaps even amongst those who don't have a wide knowledge of Japan. As of 2019, 28.4% of Japan's population was over the age of 65, which places it as the country with the highest aged population in the world. This subject has been well documented globally by such renowned broadcasters as the BBC, although the reasons behind the top-heavy demographic are widely debated. Uh, could you give a few key reasons behind this phenomenon and why, it is, why it, what its immediate impact on Japanese society is? Yes, as you as you say, this is a this is sort of very prominent uh, in the media worldwide, and I think in in the media in Japan as well. So we sort of sense that um, that population aging is something that is there and it's on people's minds. There are two main reasons for this change in the population structure, and and one of course is that fewer people, or fewer children are being born, leading to a lower birth rate, and the other reason is that people. People are living longer lives. Um, and when we speak of longevity and extended life expectancy, well, this is clearly a very positive trend. The fact is many people live longer due to advances in, in medical field and healthcare. Um, at the same time, larger proportion of older people in the population or larger proportion of, of retired people in the population um, is often seen as, a, as somewhat a problem when the proportions of the active work active population and those who are seen as dependent become somewhat changed. So the sense is that there are fewer and fewer people who are able to work and the proportion of older people and, and young children is higher in relation to those who are able to work. That creates a sort of a sense of elderly being what they call a fiscal burden. There's this sense that there's increasing pressure on healthcare services and certainly on retirement uh, pension schemes and funds being paid into them. This is somewhat mitigated by the fact that older people are also supported by the long-term care insurance, which being an insurance scheme means that everybody uh, pays into the scheme, everyone who's working. So then uh, much of that care is then funded from that insurance. At the same time as there are more and more older people, there certainly is um, a sense of a pressure 
uh, on those resources. Um, so, so that is something that is very much prominent in, in the media and very, I think people are very aware of it um, and speak of, uh, of population aging as a, as, a, as a social problem in some ways. Um, but of course, it also leads to a kind of different sense of living, living together. And I think um, we, you can see sort of societal changes uh, around it. Um, so as you um, as you walk through through particular areas of the city, you can you can see um, the way that you know the the shops are changing, um, that you know what is being provided. The area in which I lived in uh, in the south Osaka uh, was uh, was quite noticeable as a place that was was well known for being a good area for for living as an older pe- person um, on every corner virtually there seemed to be uh, a massage parlor or a corset you know one of those uh, sort of services for older people um, so so uh, there was there was this sense that the, the areas and the entire communities are transforming another to- story that I, that I often tell is in a, another part of Osaka a kindergarten had closed and in its place a center for aging citizens had been opened. So it's kind of community center for the elderly had opened. And this really encapsulates this kind of very rapid demographic change that Japan is undergoing. And this might be a bit anecdotal, but one thing that struck me from my time in Japan watching TV was the remarkably high number of elderly celebrities, um, which is simply not associated with with fame here in the, um, in the UK, at least. Uh, would you say that there is a cultural impact coming from this as well? I think that's a really interesting point that you're raising in the sense that, you know, maybe uh, the higher proportion of older people uh, in the population also means that they are, they are a very significant audience and that might lead to some positive changes in that I think the uh, celebrities uh, in this country and in Hollywood as well have been reporting that once they reach a certain age, they're no longer um, treated in the same way as invited for the, for the roles. There are very few roles for say women over 40 and I think that sort of sense that uh, that 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 those lives uh, are in need of representation and those are the stories that people want to see I think that might be a positive change in the way that um, older people are represented in the media so I think it's a, it's an interesting point. Mm. It's nice to hear that there might be some positive changes coming from this once. The uh, issue of, of Japan's aging population, as you've mentioned, is compounded by its low birth rates, uh, with the Japanese health ministry expecting its total population to drop by approximately 40 million by 2060. Is there a connection between Japan's increasing elderly population and declining birth rates? Yes, I, I would say there certainly is. Uh, and I think what is what is interesting about this, and I think it is our understanding of, you know, how networks of care operate and what actually it means to live in a society which has a very high proper, uh, proportion of the, of the elderly um, and how it feels to live in such a place. So one thing that I already touched upon is the sense that, you know, certain communities are changing and that, that the kind of life in those communities is changing. Um, but I think in terms of kind of everyday life, what is kind of interesting from an anthropological perspective is to think how, you know, what is the experience uh, of living in, in a place where, where such rapid 
demographic changes are taking place. So it's not just that, you know, certain proportions and certain numbers are changing. Certain, um, you know, very, very um, basic aspects of daily life are very different. So if you think about supporting older people, uh, you know, m much of the kind of discourse uh, that surrounds, you know, in the media that surrounds aging is there's kind of a sense that, you know, younger people aren't necessarily um, as willing to support the elderly as, as much as they used to be in some sort of remote, uh, glorious past. But I think that, that if you look at demography, what you what you can notice immediately is that um, it is it is a very different experience if you're moving through life and you had several siblings. And then those several siblings can share the support and care for their aging parents as, as they move through, through their lives. And it's a very different experience from being the only child or one of the two children. And then um, sometimes uh, today when people get married, it is a couple and they both have, their, they might both be uh, the only children in their families, in their nuclear families. And therefore, as they move through life, they have to look after um, two uh, pairs of of, of aging uh, parents, so that that uh, that kind of change is not merely numerical. There, that feels quite different, and there's there's of course an increasing recognition that that sort of care also requires support from from the state, and that there has to be something as well functioning long term care insurance, which is you know uh, one of the systems that's worldwide. Like I think one of the best and most comprehensive systems of uh, of support. Um, so even though it's, of course, experiencing uh, um, pressures and challenges at the moment. Um, so, so I think what is interesting about this kind of change is this, this sense that how that actually plays out in, in people's everyday lives. What does it mean to live in a society that that is undergoing such a population change? And I think in some ways that's, um, that's something that, um, that awaits us um, in, in other places as well. So would you say that, um, to summarize, the low birth rate is to do with the economic burden that's created by having to, to care for two pairs of grandparents as one couple? Or would you say that, that uh, there's more to it than that? Oh, right. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say that that's like a straightforward sort of relationship. I certainly think that um, that's, that's part of the story. There's, um, there's a changing dynamic of what it means to be a couple or a married couple uh, today in Japan, how people perceive that. Um, the, the, the gender roles um, might be changing, but there's also structurally um, not very much support for child rearing. And it's, perceived as something that's rather challenging. It's really rather difficult for uh, couples to both be working and raise a child. Raising children is, uh, is difficult, challenging and expensive. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think uh, I think there 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 are numerous reasons for uh, for declining birth rate and the changing sort of understanding of um, of parenthood and and marriage, um, which you know I think we should we should comment on the fact that many many people decide not to get married um, and that it is relatively rare and still rather challenging to become 
a parent uh, outside the institution of marriage in Japan. I think that's quite uh, different from maybe what our listeners would uh, expect. So, um, so I think there are many reasons, but I would say that one of the one of the main and very obvious challenges is uh, is the absence um, of sufficient uh, childcare. The, the access to childcare is very limited, um, and the and the working culture requires very very long hours. So I would say that those are some of the reasons. But I'm, uh, this is not really within my direct field of expertise. This is uh, you know these are these are my observations and what I've uh, what I've also learned from my interlocutors in Japan. I see. Going back to um, the elderly population of Japan, your latest research, as you mentioned, focuses on the quality of life in aging Japan, envisioning how people perceive a greater life amidst the concerns of a troubling future and unprecedented challenges. How are life choices changing in reaction to an aging society and what makes a life meaningful, as you put it, in this context? So my research was based among older people in Osaka, and um, I think one of the things that was that was very clear that while on one hand there was this very very wide ranging sense on on kind of on the level of um, media discourses of anxiety about aging, that certainly was not the case with uh, among those older people that I worked with. Um, and so I, I thought that was a rather interesting phenomenon. So how, how come that, you know, everyone's anxious about aging, but, you know, people who are in their old age or approaching old age weren't necessarily as anxious. And uh, of course, this is not to speak about everybody. These were people who were living independently or with their families in their own homes rather than in, in institutions. And uh, they were part of a very well-functioning community. And I think what was clear is that the, they were cultivating their community ties of support, and therefore they were um, they were able to live independently through interdependence, through support of others. And so I think what is very very clear that while we on one hand have these discourses of um, elderly as possibly as a burden or uh, as dependent or as frail. Um, really on the ground what we're what we're seeing is that that older people themselves are not necessarily always uh, merely recipients of care but they're providers of care of various forms of care for others and I think that was a very very kind of important finding that um, older people were engaged in various kinds of support and care for others so even those who were in their late 80s, in their 90s, were still able to care for others, maybe not in physical ways, but to check up on them, try and provide uh, relevant information, create connections, uh, say, oh, I noticed that uh, so-and-so mentioned that their uh, light bulb in the hallway requires replacing, and Mr. So-and-so has a, has a, a young neighbor or a cousin who can then maybe go over to that um, lady's house and help them change their light bulb. So through creating these networks of support, through facilitating things, uh, they were still able to create networks of care and support. Um, and so when we, when we see that you know, older people uh, in Japan are, are able to live good lives, this is not merely because they rely on assistance of others. On the contrary, it is precisely because they're crafting these relationships of care. Mm. And I suppose as part of this, 
the understanding of what it means to be old or elderly must also be changing. I suppose that someone who is 60 might be seen as someone who is a young old person who can help someone who is 80 or 90 and is less physically able to take care of themselves too. So it's, it's, the definition is, must be changing too, is that correct? Oh, I think you're very right about that. I, I actually don't know if anybody in their 60s would even consider themselves old. Um, and um, even, even in, in sort of uh, past the retirement age, which is the sort of uh, officially now around 65, but that's probably going to be changing as well. Um, so I, I think certainly people are, are thinking of themselves as, as, as young and capable and um, it, I think they're they're remaining active, and I think as uh, as more and more people are actually moving in this age towards um, towards the second employment, I think that's going to change further uh, the perception of uh, of of age. I see. Now, the total number of over sixty fives globally is expected to triple by twenty fifty, showing this is not a problem limited to Japan, although it is argu- arguably more immediate and worrying there. What would be the global impact of this and what can other nations learn from what Japan is currently experiencing? That's a really good question. I think in some ways, uh, you know, uh, what we are seeing in Japan is is what awaits many societies and perhaps many societies in the West. Although the situation is somewhat different in that it seems to me that there are fewer migrants in Japan at least at the moment maybe that will maybe that will start to change there are fewer immigrants um, therefore the kind of overall sort of population situation is slightly different um, but I think what is uh, you know what we can certainly learn is um, that uh, sort of maintaining uh, networks of support, maintaining and cultivating networks of support is very important. Um, that providing uh, various forms of, of active involvement for, lo- for older people is very important. And, and, and Japanese elderly were really the, the drivers of this. So when we think about uh, sort of young people as, as, as those who are driving the social change, I think what was very, very interesting in the context of Japan is that some of the social changes that are really seemed to be driven by the older people. So they were very concerned not to become the burden on their families. Um, and so if the traditional sort of uh, ideal situation or idealized situation would be that um, the, the older aging parents move in with their oldest son and be looked after by them and their family and probably by their older son's wife, perhaps, sort of in a standard scenario. This is something that, uh, that many of the older people resisted. And so they were not very interested in, in actually moving. And they instead wanted to cultivate their own ties and networks of support. And they would prefer to stay in their own uh, houses at times uh, rather than move. And I think this is an example of this kind of uh, older age-driven social change that, you know, that it's not necessarily just the, the young people that drive cultural and social change. Um, so I think what, what we're going to see in, in other places is, is going to be, you know, of course, also culturally inflected. What has to do with, uh, with uh, social and cultural expectations in those particular places? Um, but what we can see is that, that older people are very, very valuable, very active and very caring members of society and that we should really certainly avoid thinking of them as dependent or as a sort of form of a burden. 
and kind of um, portraying um, older age as, as as necessarily mostly negative. Um, so so that is, that is one thing that is um, that is coming out from from this research. I would think that the cultural context of Japan perhaps fosters these dynamic social changes, providing agency to the elderly more readily as Japan is a culture which traditionally has um, taught respect for the elderly and allowed them to have a voice, as opposed to in the West, where you have problems of families hoisting their elderly parents onto care homes and forgetting about them. So do you believe that this could be a barrier to positive change in attitude towards elderly people in Western nations? I think I think we shouldn't really um, necessarily expect any such developments because, as as I said, older people themselves can be drivers of social change, and I think it's entirely possible that uh, as today's middle-aged or younger elderly are are moving through their lives, that they will demand different kinds of social structures and institutions, um, so different different forms of care and support more care in place, you know, and, and less maybe institutionalization or different forms of um, support homes. So that's that's something that that is entirely possible. I think, yes, I think as we're, as we're moving through time, we should kind of consider what uh, what are the ways to prepare uh, and what are the, what are the forms of uh, care and support we can organize. I think it's very much worth thinking about uh, long-term care insurance and some form of long-term care provision. Um, and I think Japanese case is is very instructive, both with its challenges, but also with with its vision of a very comprehensive care system and the provision that is varied. And I think this is one of the examples, as you you know, as you kind of brought up this issue of of care homes and not everyone finding themselves wishing to live in a care home. I think what is interesting about the long term care provision in Japan, and that's something that is, I think, a very good case to look at um, is the is the variety of the provision so the needs of the uh, of the person are assessed and the care is provided according to the needs um, but the the form of care is something very much that the older person themselves negotiate with their uh, care manager uh, according to uh, how they want it organized so they might wish to have uh, home helpers they might wish to move into partially support supported accommodation, private accommodation with just simply someone uh, being there. There are various, very diverse arrangements uh, that are there to choose from, both within, both from the public sphere and, and from the private sector and also NGO sector. So there's a lot to choose from. And now I don't want to overstate how good this is because certainly there are challenges and there are pressures on this system. And the provision has been shrinking as well. So I don't, I don't want to sound as if this is a perfect system, but I think this, uh, uh, this sense that uh, that there is a variety and there is a sense of choice and there is a sense of planning, uh, that's certainly something that uh, that is worth learning from. The other trend that I would like to learn more about, and I think that would be also instructive for for other societies, is is this uh, trend towards longer employment or reemployment in retirement. 
Um, at the moment, actually, many companies are still suggesting that their employees retire relatively early. And this is now, there is now sort of a, a legal framework in Japan that's moving the retirement age uh, further. And, and you know, n- not everyone wants to retire <laughs> early. But at the same time, we also should be aware of the fact that many people who are returning to employment and retirement, while some of them might be doing it because of the kind of additional interest and activity that brings to their life, not everyone really necessarily is doing it for that reason. Some might be motivated financially. So I think that it's worth finding out more about how that is going to play out. And this is a changing situation. And of course, now in the context of COVID, this might be even more complicated because of course, older people might be more vulnerable and therefore less likely to take up uh, certain kinds of second careers. But I think this is sort of a, a sphere that I think we're going to all have to think about more carefully, work in older age. Finally, uh, on the subject of COVID, uh, you have expanded on your work on meaningful lives by exploring ethnographies of hope. Could you tell us a little more about your research there and perhaps give us a message of hope to finish on in these troubled times? <laughs> Thank you. That's a that's a wonderful invitation, but I, I hope I can live up to it. Um, I think um, when we think about hope in Japan, the, the sort of most prominent uh, work is probably of uh, work of Yamada Masahiro, who, who suggested that hope in Japan is increasingly shifting into um, into two camps, that there are two camps of people, uh, one that can hope and the other that cannot hope anymore. Hope haves and hope have-nots, if you wish, that there's a sort of increasing gap in the Japanese society um, in, in the ability to hope. And I think that that is uh, very much to do with the with the sense that uh, the sort of security and safety net in Japan is becoming increasingly threadbare. That some people are finding themselves in per- permanent employment, while others um, are uh, increasingly in in unstable and underpaid uh, temporary forms of employment, uh, precarious situations, and that that really leads to the sort of bifurcation between those who can hope and then those who cannot hope. But I think there's a danger in framing hope in this way. Um, and there's, there's a problem with thinking of hope as sort of a zero-sum game in which uh, in order for some to be able to hope, others, um, others have less of it. And I think the, the, the research on, on hope that I have found um, both by the, uh, you know, the on, on research on communities of hope um, that's conducted at, at the University of Tokyo, hope studies, really very interesting work, um, suggests that really the more hope there is for those who have less, the more hope there is for everyone. And so got a sense of communal resource of hope. And um, the, the ethnographies of hope that I've worked on really imply that um, hope is perhaps best thought of as, as a common good. And therefore, in order for everyone to become more hopeful, we really have to build up those who are in the most difficult situation. And that hope really isn't a zero-sum game, but 
thrives in circulation and that more there is of it, the more we all have it. And so I think that's really becoming very, very clear now in COVID times that we really have to attend to inequalities and build up those who feel least like they can have hope. And the more we do that, the more hope there will be for everyone. Well, let's hope for a hopeful future then. That was really insightful. Thank you for your, for your time. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you. You can find a link to Isa's research profile and her articles in the description below. Beyond Japan will be taking a brief hiatus, with the next episode coming out on Thursday the 19th of November, when we will be joined by Dr. Ian Rapley of Cardiff University to discuss transnational language in modern Japan. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.